and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Johnny from Canada joins me today to discuss all kinds of cool stuff. What have you been up to, man? I have been up to so much stuff. I'm so busy and so tired. I've been, uh, I revamped my reel. I went into pre-production for a, a commercial that I'm shooting at the end of this month. Uh, I just uh, finished a massive um, instructional video project. And now I'm on the last five or six videos of another massive uh, in commercial instructional video project. So my head is just spinning. I live in front of my computer. How about you? I am doing good. My life is a lot less busy than yours, apparently. I finished up my uh, last traveling shoot uh, last week, I think, and uh, that was three overnight shoots. And then after that, I'm just in the editing bay for the last like week or so. It hasn't been too bad, yeah. actually. Like Casual Fridays editing. I <laughs> only point the camera chest up when I've got somebody on the other screen, you know, where my boxers oh, nice. into work. It's not too bad. Oh, very cool. Very cool. That sounds, that sounds relaxing. I, I'm usually uh, like this time of year, especially where I am, you know, we're, we're covered in snow. So I'm usually super slow right now. I don't know what's going on, but it's nice. You're not getting hit by that like giant mega storm that's messing with Boston no. and all that stuff. No, no. We're just getting regular, our regular five or six feet of snow, which is normal. No, I'm not nothing like what, uh, what the East coast, even more East coast, I should say is getting, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. That's awful. What commercial stuff have you been working on or can you talk um, about it? Uh, well, I can't, I, yeah, I don't know what I can talk about. I, the, the commercial that I'm shooting at the end of the month is actually for a, uh, a private company. Uh, so like a smaller company, a uh, uh, home inspection company. Um, and it's, uh, this is a, one of the first for me that it, they're actually shooting it um, with the intention of showing it before uh, movies. So it's like at the theaters. So oh, it's okay. not, like not a preview, but you know, those yeah, like, they're like they, trailers they that they throw the ad trailers at certain like Cinemark right. and uh, other theaters. Yeah. 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 So the, the, it's like a lot of local stuff. So they're actually specifically shooting for that. So I thought that was really cool. <laughs> and those are fun. And a lot of times like the, the, the bar is set a little bit lower for that sort of thing. So then you don't have to work That's as cool. hard on them. You can turn it over and they're like, Oh, motion graphics is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is, this is all luckily uh, after the, um, the, the new Neil Blomkamp uh, alien announcement, this whole thing is like a, like an alien spoof sort of nice. So, yeah, so there should be some interesting, a lot of green lights and smoke, some face huggers, stuff like that. I've got my smoke machine back behind me over there. I've, I own two of them for filling up an entire room with smoke. It's pretty sweet yeah. to do. Yeah, I get a great deal on one at Walmart, of all places, for like 20 bucks after Halloween with, with a big couple of gallons of smoke stuff included. And it works great. I thought it was going to be a piece of crap, but it's awesome. One other thing to look at if you're shooting with a, a lot of smoke is – um, on Amazon and some of these other party places, they sell these LED beam lights with a little mm. sort of uh, um, magnifying glass type of deal. So it gives you really straight, solid beams. And when you're working with a lot of fog, you can really like do that sort of 80s music video thing where you have perfect <laughs> lines going through stuff. And it's really cool if you have somebody walking into a room with a flashlight. Um, instead of using an actual flashlight where the light kind of disperses too much, you can actually use one of these beam lights, put it in their hand and they get this perfect like flashlight beam that goes across and goes straight out and doesn't go anywhere else. And it's, oh, it's that cool. like great flashlight look that you're always seeing in horror movies. And it, it took me forever to figure that out myself. I should have just asked somebody, but those are sweet <laughs> for that. 
Yeah, yeah, and and uh, that combined with like a, an anamorphic lens or an anamorphic adapter. J.J. Mm. Abrams meets aliens. James Cameron's aliens. Getting beautiful and there. It. On that note, time <laughs> for the news. Time for the news. First up, we've got one thing that actually is sort of news to me, but not really real news. Um, I had no idea that this was a thing. Did you know that on wide angle lenses, certain wide angle lenses, there's actually a secret slot on the back of the lens itself where you can slide a filter in. This is designed because some of these uh, wide angle lenses are really bulbous in the front and they stick out and you can't really get filter threads on them. So this is a secret way to apply filters to the back of your wide angle lens. Have you used this, John? I've never, you know, I, I started ripping apart wide angle lenses after you sent me the show notes tonight before I was scrambling and having all the technical problems. What lenses, like how wide does it have to go to have this? Is it I'm, only certain caliber? I've got my uh, 16 to 35 right here, and you can see the little square marks on oh, the yeah. end of the lens. That's where it actually slides in. There's a filter slot right there. I've looked at the back of that a thousand times, and I've never actually checked the back of that or done anything with it. And honestly, my 16 to 35, I actually, I have a filter on it right now. So I guess it's not bulbous enough that it's really an issue with this particular lens, but it's still an offering. And apparently it's on a lot of other wide angle lenses. I'm actually going to have to dig through my entire set and find out what's available. But uh, that's kind of cool. It might be handy if the, and I was looking at it specifically, the seven to 14 millimeter F4 from Panasonic that I just got. I haven't opened that up to look on the back yet, but that one's really bulbous on the front and it doesn't even have any filter threads. So if that has it, maybe that's a good way to put a, I don't know, an ND slip or something like that in there. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. I'm going to have to take, take a look at all mine after and, uh, and see. So where, what kind of, what kind of filters are those? I've never, uh, they're basically a gel type filter. So in the oh. old days, you could actually buy filters in sheets and you can buy them in, you know, whatever, if you need a polarizing filter or something like that, you can buy it in just the material itself. And then you can actually right. trim it up to whatever size you need. And they do actually sell um, slips that are designed specifically for that slot. So if you look around on some of these photography sites, uh, apparently this is a big thing and there's a lot of them available. So if you have some wide angle lenses and you're looking for that, that's one option. Also, if you look down the notes a little bit here, I've got this astronomic clip filter. And if you go to their website, uh, I believe it's just astronomic.com. And it's spelled with a K. I don't know if the real astronomic is spelled with a K or not. Somebody correct me on that. I'm not a spelling guy. Anyway, um, <laughs> the point is, is that one actually screws in to the mechanism housing right in front of your uh, flip up mirror. So you can put that on certain cameras as well. And they have a list. It looks like it works on the 7D Mark II, the 7D and various other Rebel series cameras. So that's another interesting option to get a filter behind your lens instead of in front of your lens. Oh, that's really cool. And they, they seem to be marketing this towards astronomers. Yeah, the, um, <laughs> the filter types that you want, they, if you're doing star photography, a lot of times you want a really wide angle, especially if you, you, know, you, you want to get the entire sky in and maybe a little bit right. of the horizon. So then where do you put your filter on there? And if you want longer exposures or something like that, maybe you need to put some ND filters or something. I've never actually done star photography, so I can't yeah, speak either. to the types of filters that they use. 
but I didn't even know that they sold a filter for this until I started really digging into this particular selection. And this uh, astronomic.com filter just drops right into the body of your camera right in front of the mirror. So they've got some demonstrations on there and uh, some recommendations for cameras that it works with. And it looks like they sell uh, numerous filter types in that particular form factor. So if you need a filter behind your lens, you should definitely check one of these options out. That's really, really cool. And especially because I'm, I'm a big believer in trying to get, you know, 95% of, of my, my filming done in the camera that, you know, don't rely on post so much. And I wonder what kind of looks you could come up with uh, just with different filters and, and stacking filters in a different way. I don't know. Maybe there's something. There something might even cool be some cool, do. like, uh, you know how some of the companies that kind of uh, distress your lens a little bit, they mess it up. Right. I wonder if you could yeah. distress the filter or put some kind of, you know, fog filter or something like that behind the camera to get you some weird like light noise or some like light bending or some lens flare that doesn't normally happen. I don't know if that's the case. Yeah. I mean, somebody will have to look into this, but I wonder what would happen if you put like a semi-translucent mirror back there. You know, like one of those ones where it's like the kind of shiny paper or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. maybe the light starts bouncing around in there. I don't know. That could well, give it, you some interesting stuff. Yeah. And, and like, I mean, originally with film cameras and stuff, that was one that they were actually putting, you know, I've heard of people still doing it. They take the nylons and they put it on the back of the lens or, or even oh, yeah. brave enough Vaseline or whatever. I knew people that would actually uh, wipe the grease off of their forehead and then they would yeah. wipe it onto the back of their lens because they said the lens was too sharp. And that's still a, a, a practice in some older people. You know, I don't know anybody yeah. my age that has done that or that I've seen do that, but I've no. heard people talk about it. So obviously it was a thing at some point. Um, honestly, I don't turn up the sharpness in my camera. I find like the GH4 and stuff like that is already really sharp, sharp. as is, yeah. and it looks almost a little bit ugly. So I find myself adding uh, one or two about uh, about one yeah one to two amount of blur one to two percent yeah. uh, in yeah. post so that way it kind of just gives everything a little bit smoother look plus a lot of faces especially if you're shooting close up it gives you like that less crisp look you don't want to see their pores and you don't want to see like the acne and stuff like that uh, so right. having a little bit of blur kind of gives you that sort of soft look that's better for faces and for females in general and males as well. I mean, I look pretty good right now because I'm using a webcam, but I switch over to something that has like really good contrast and sharpness. And it's just like, Oh, yeah. now you can see that, uh, you know, I have a zit on my forehead or something like that. It's disgusting. You yeah. don't want to see that moving yeah. on. And I, mean, I, I mean, I look good, you know, right now, but this is just the way I look. Wow. Wow. And I'm modest. Yes, he is. Yes, he is, folks. Moving on down the line, I've got a few lens announcements, and these are kind of interesting um, and sort of weird at the same time. Panasonic has released the 42.5mm f1.7. It isn't a groundbreaking lens because there's already the Olympus 45mm f1.8, but what they do add is a little bit more aperture, so you get an f1.7 instead of an f1.8. And then they added IS to this lens. They also released the Panasonic 30mm f2.8 macro, which also has a or has an IS system built into the lens. This seems to be competing with Olympus's in-body stabilization, and it looks like, um, I was looking at one of Panasonic's roadmaps, it seems as though they're planning to add IS to a lot more of their prime lenses. In the past, you only saw this in their really high-end primes, 
like the $1,400 uh, Noctacon uh, 42.5 millimeter F1.8 and their high end uh, 70 to 100 millimeter, or excuse me, 70 to 200 equivalent. It's uh, 35 to 100 millimeter and the 12 to 35 millimeter. Are you interested in this or have you even moved them four thirds yet? Are you still on uh, Canon cameras? I, yeah, I am still on Canon cameras. I mean, if I, if I was going to buy a camera today, it would looking around, I think it would be the GH4, but I was going to ask you, I, I, I've never really used any Panasonic lenses and I, I have, I don't really know anybody that uses Panasonic lenses that much. Uh, Sony a little bit, but now Panasonic, how are their lenses? They're great They're actually. Affordable and, yeah. Um, yeah. Micro four thirds lenses in general are really affordable. You can get uh, a whole slew of primes for under $400 a piece, $300 a piece. Some of them are in like the 190 range. Uh, it, it's pretty phenomenal in the pricing for these lenses. Um, I wasn't a big fan of their 12 to 35 millimeter F2.8 zoom. It, it's a little bit plasticky. It does have IS built in, but I didn't find it to be uh, groundbreaking enough for me to really want to go that route. And I ended up with yeah. the Olympus 12 to 40 millimeter, which doesn't have IS built in, but the lens is a little more solid and it has in stops instead of fly by wire and, and some of that stuff. Um, but honestly, I have an assortment. I went probably 50% Panasonic and 50% Olympus throughout the line of four thirds lenses that I'm shooting on now. So I'm not going to buy this lens, but it is interesting that they're releasing new lenses with IS. Yeah. I mean, at least because, I mean, showing that they're actually going with the IS uh, route, I'm wondering if they are trying to capitalize on other companies dropping the ball and them saying like, oh, okay, we can, this is going to be a, an industry standard uh, video camera. Let's, let's give them some more options from, from us instead of having to buy old, you know, the Olympic lenses or older lenses or anything like that. One of the things I've run into with uh, the IS in lens for Panasonic is shooting at 4K. It does kind of um, make the image a little bit fuzzy. And I'm used to pulling images right out of the GH4 at 4K being super sharp and almost obnoxiously sharp. But when I turn right. the IS on on some of the lenses, it's... It feels like it's kind of a little bit motion blurry. And I don't know if that's just because um, maybe I haven't updated the firmware to the lenses because Panasonic lenses and Micro Four Thirds in general, you have firmware for your camera, but you also have firmware for your lenses. And I haven't gone through and checked all my lenses to find out if they're running the latest version of whatever firmware. But it does feel a little bit uh, wishy-washy when I run the uh, internal IS. And I find the same thing is prevalent on the 12 to 35 millimeter from Panasonic. I didn't really care for the look that I was getting out of the IS system. So that's kind of also what pushed me away from it. I'm not sure if these will be the same or not. These are newer lenses. So that could be the difference. I don't know. Do you run into any issues with IS or do you use IS on any of your lenses? I honestly, I try not to. I, I kind of am a little old school and, and, if I mean I, I'll I guess I'll use it if if it's there, but normally I just I leave it off. I don't even think about it. And I try to support the 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 sensor and the camera more than anything else, and just kind of go that old route. I feel I feel like it's a just a bit more cinematic, and I don't know. That's just my old standby. That's just what I do. I'm the same way, honestly. I I don't use big rigs. I'm not huge on the IS, and I kind of like to sort of hold the camera up against my chest in this sort of manner. That's one of the yeah. things I really like about uh, the A7S, and I've actually got that 
right here. And I'll talk about what's attached to it in a second. But uh, the A7S, you can just flip the screen up like so. And then you have that perfect like looking down sort of thing where you can look down at the camera and hold it kind of in this position. So it makes it really nice for holding the camera in place. I don't walk around with this this stuff attached usually. Um, I usually just use the back of the screen unless I'm shooting on a Canon camera. Then I'll use a bulldog style rig where I actually have the screen mounted right on the top so I can look down at it that way. Uh, but with the uh, GH4, you have the flip-out screen, and so you can rotate that in pretty much any direction you'd like and really get some good angles out of that. Very nice. That is mm. – um, I might as well talk about it really quick. Yeah, I was um, going to say, I want to I hear about the rig now. Okay, bit. so this one actually uh, – Robert kind of got me started looking at this, and this is from a small rig, and Ooh, this, is the, uh, this is the this is their very minimalist Sony A7 cage, and uh, – Basically, what I did is I kind of tricked mine out the old-fashioned way. I ordered extra parts. I added one of their uh, NATO clusters right here and then a NATO rail across the top as well. And so the way I have this set up is I have one NATO cluster or rail here, one NATO rail here, and then I picked up the handle that actually is the forward sliding handle as opposed to the the other one that has the the rail going this way. Because yeah. uh, I think originally they intended the rail to go across the this direction. But if you do this, you can slide it on here. And now you have your top grip when you need it. And you can slide it over here. And now you can hold the camera like this. And you have the hand grip on one side. And then you have this on the other. So you can do this and walk around with it and be in a really comfortable spot. Then nice. for mounting, I actually added this other bit and this is actually their evf viewfinder adapter and the evf viewfinder adapter is just this two kind of rotating clamps and you can slide that on to this rail like so and now you have this monitor that can be positioned pretty much you know any direction you want and it's on this little flat plane right here and then you can slide that on and off very easily so if you do need to have the monitor with the camera you can hold it like this this whole entire setup uh, with the rails and everything, I, I believe I spent $160 total. And the handle feels really nice. There's a cold shoe up here. And then, of course, I also picked up one of these guys right here, which is the small rig adapter for another cold shoe. So if I want to put something in over here on the side, I can. The nice thing about the Sony uh, small rig minimalist cage here is that it also leaves the front section open so if you look right here you can still get to the hot shoe so if you want to put something there if you're using one of those k1m uh, audio adapters or something like that or a wireless mic uh, sony has an adapter now for their wireless units that brings the audio directly in via the hot shoe you can use that as well on this without getting in the way of the entire setup and that's really nice if you're using the handle on the side because now you have two handles Plus, you have the cold shoe adapter on the handle, and then you have the hot shoe for any of those sorts of, of accessories. See what I mean? Yeah, that is awesome. I, I've been a fan of small rig for a while, but that's, that is really cool. That looks fantastic. Yeah, and I you, love- you know, I wish they would um, sort of like recommend stuff on their site. I know. Because you're kind of like I- guessing when you're buying this stuff. Yeah. I got really lucky that I got the right ones, but... Honestly, um, until I balanced this out, I didn't know if this was going to be a good spot for it. And I didn't actually, you know, realize how long these rails were. So this one is just at the limit of where I'm happy with it. 
but I would have liked to have had something maybe over here, or that's what I was thinking originally. Once I put it all together, it turns out this is a good spot for it and I'm happy with it. But when I was originally planning, I was planning to put it right here. Well, the screw holes on this side of the hot shoe are too narrow and too shallow, so you can't screw into them without hitting the camera body itself. So then that turns this into a non-starter for your mounting point. Right. I know. I was. That's what I was going to ask you is how you came up with that configuration because I've never seen that before ever. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> like, so how did, you, did you just sit there with a ruler and be like, okay, this goes here? <laughs> I did, actually. So um, I don't like having a full rig around my, like a big yeah. rig, but I do like having some extra mounting stuff. And I was right. staring at that configuration for probably about two hours, just trying to think about how it would fit on here and, and measuring stuff out. And so they have a lot of specs on the size of everything there. So I was able to take a ruler and some calipers and kind of measure where things were, but that okay. still doesn't answer everything because the particular yeah. rail I got here, it has three total spots that you can actually mount to the device. And this third spot, as you can see, is kind of floating out in nowhere land and you only need two of them to make it secure. But it doesn't line up with all three holes. You can see it's just a little bit off right oh, here. Yeah. So it's only intended to have two out of the three of these line up with this top plate. And they actually sell a version of this that has a slot where you can slide the screw to wherever mm -hmm. you need and then mount it as many times as you need to. And that one actually has a little uh, basically spring-loaded nubbin at the end of each side so that the handle can't slip off at all. And right. if I had to do it over again, I would have ordered one of those for the top as opposed to two of of this type of NATO adapter. I believe they're called NATO adapters. You know, they're the same thing you see on gun rails or um, yeah. uh, I believe, uh, um, uh, yeah, small small rig uses them, but so does a wooden camera. Um, Red has some on their adapter systems. So they're not too uncommon. And there's a bunch of different providers for these. But in the future, I'll probably – it sucks because you spend most of the money on shipping for this stuff because it's coming from China. Yeah. So, like, yeah. I think the whole set was going to be, like, 145 or or 120 but then shipping was, like, $35. So that's what right. pushed it up to, like, the 160 170 range. And now to buy another one of the plates, the plate that I actually want, it's going to be, uh, like, 20 bucks. It's not that big a deal price-wise, but now I'm going to have to spend $15 in shipping. So – it's $30 yeah. or $35 instead of, you know, what it would have been to just buy it the right way to begin with. But that's what you get for guessing. Still pretty happy with this. I don't know. What do you think? Is that a good configuration? I, yeah, that, I think that's really cool. I, um, that's exactly like you nailed exactly what you were saying uh, about the, the handle on the side. I mean, it's it's adaptable. It's modular. You can you can you know, you can switch that around a bunch of different ways, not just the two, but if you need to, you know. Um, I, I was going to ask you, I mean, I've never actually, uh, uh, I've only screwed around with a, a few of uh, friends' small rig little setups, and they didn't have a lot of stuff. Like, they didn't even have that much. They usually just have the cage, because their cage is really affordable, and they're pretty solid. It's nice stuff. <laughs> uh, but how, what do you think? Like, the build quality and everything, everything's... Uh, Machining-wise, it's really nice. Um, there was a couple of threads in the uh, quarter 20 holes that were a little bit uh, dinged up and they needed to be kind of followed through a little bit. But once you run a screw in and out of them, you're fine. Um, the only okay. thing I really um, kind of noticed right away 
is that there's a little bit of slop. If you look down here, there's three holes at the bottom of this cage. For the audio listeners, you might want to check out the video portion of this. Uh, this is at the 24-minute mark. Um, it's got a set of three holes at the bottom, and those are where the screws go into the bottom plate and to the top plate. And they're a little bit... Uh, there's a little bit of play in there to get it to, to connect properly. So you can slide this plate up and down maybe a, a quarter of an inch or an eighth, well, more like an eighth or a sixteenth of an inch, but it's enough slop okay. that you kind of have to sort of pinch it together when you're tightening these down in order to get it where you want it. It's not so horrible as to, you know, throw it out or get mad at it or anything. The price and then the design makes it well worthwhile, but uh there is that slot there and I'll probably, I haven't done it yet, but when I put this together permanently, I will most likely put some Loctite on there and maybe uh, dribble a little bit of sealant or something so that, that those don't wiggle loose uh, yeah. in their spot. Um, one of the other things is that the way I configured it, this rail here does block the one of the access screws, but I pretty much intend to leave this on my A7S permanently, so I don't think that's an issue. The design yeah. itself, though, you can see it leaves this half of the plate open so you can totally hold on to the camera the way you want to hold on to the camera. And you still have access to the battery compartment. It doesn't conflict with the screen or any of the access to that. And it doesn't get in the way of any of the dials. The dials are all on the right-hand side of the Sony a7S, not on the left-hand side. So even though this is covering this section up, you're not missing out on anything that you would need to get to with the camera. Whereas like that Veravon cage I have for my GH4, the GH4 has buttons on both sides and knobs on both sides. So sometimes you have to kind of like stick your finger in there at an <laughs> angle and, and wiggle it around yeah. to get to the spot. But yeah, small could, rig yeah. doing a really good job guys. I I'm pretty happy with this for the a seven S. So that's cool. And it looks fantastic. It looks really good. I mean, yeah, I I I'm been happy with anything that I've had. I I get I want to I'm trying to right now I'm like slowly putting together just like a really simple rail based uh kind of uh quick shoulder rig that can go back and forth between a tripod and uh with a mat box and everything else um like as a cinema rig and I'm I'm doing it with small rig parts so I'll let you know how that goes when I actually get everything. <laughs> I have a cheese plate and regular rails but I don't find myself using rails enough to really make it a necessity for my normal everyday work. Uh, yeah. I do have one mat box laying around and for the one or two occasions where I actually have to go get it out to impress somebody, I hook yeah. up my rails and use it. But I would say 90% of the time I do not use a mat box at all. Don't even bother with it. And for most of the newer uh, gear follow focus systems, you don't have to have a set of rails in order to hook them on. You can just have a little screw mount adapter or, or what have you. So, and honestly, unless I'm like uh, doing something where I really need to be precise with my follow focus, I don't even put my follow focus on that much just because it takes too much time between setups and changing out lenses and adjusting things yeah. and everything else. So it, it's kind of another thing that I just, I've gotten lazy over the years and I don't do it anymore. <laughs> the follow focus is actually a good tool and you should use it, especially if you're moving back and forth between focus points uh, continuously in a scene. But a lot of times I'm getting one shot where uh, someone's talking and then I pull focus to the person behind them. And then suddenly yeah. I'm changing the, the angle or where I'm at. So I move the camera around. So then that's it. That was my focus pull. Or, you know, like somebody reaches down to grab something off the table and I pull focus on that and I'm going to cut to something else. So then there's never that back and forth, back and forth that I'm yeah. doing. 
And even when it's back and forth, you know, if you set your camera to F4 or on the GH4 or F2.8 and roll your focus back and forth, that's plenty. I mean, you can basically just wing it and get it pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, for any kind of like short film work and stuff, I feel like every time I, I do something, it's getting more ambitious and more ambitious and we're trying to push things more and more and more and more. So I just, yeah. That's I, I, a lot of dolly moves and things, a lot of Fincher style stuff and, and less handheld these days. So I'm going to go in that direction. I just want to try it. We keep, uh, when I shoot feature length films and uh, uh, shorts, I actually keep one camera completely not tied down. And then the other one is for all the setup shots. So right. when we walk into a project, I generally have all the storyboards set up and all of my motion shots and, and crane shots and everything all marked out and ready to go. And mm-hmm. that way, the camera that's being bolted down is always being moved from whatever device it's on to the next device it needs to be on for the next shot, while the handheld camera is kind of running around, you know, getting this angle, getting that angle. Hey, can you deliver your lines into the camera just because we didn't get audio in that last shot or something like that? And that's kind of my back and forth. So I don't know if that's the right way. I don't think there is a right or a wrong way, but uh, whatever yeah. works best for you, I suppose, is the, yeah. the thing to do. Yeah, and, and whatever's the best for the for the story when it comes to narrative stuff anyway. Whoops. Now, moving down the line here, uh, we were talking about the Sony a7S. I also wanted to take a look at the Sony sensors themselves. Uh, Sony has mm-hmm. announced that they're going to stop producing CCD sensors for uh, any basic, any camera operating system. Um, they, I actually didn't realize what cameras were in here, and I, I, I brought up a list, and you can find the list of the show notes, but it appears most of these are either mid-level, low-range security cameras, or in the photography and video section, there's a couple of like strange ones, like the Leica M monochrome digital camera. Uh, that's a $7,000 camera, and uh, it does have a CCD in it. Um, and then there's a couple other just oddball ones. And then from there, it cuts off and goes right down to these kind of like aqua underwater pseudo cinema cameras <laughs> yeah. and then these really kind of shady looking $60 point and shoot cameras and it just kind of falls off from there so i don't know if i care that they're getting rid of the ccd technology but uh it is kind of sort of weird that those two haven't been bouncing back and forth like they used to are have yeah. you ever shot on a ccd camera yeah, yeah. I mean, all all the the old cameras uh, in the early two thousands that were actually starting to look more cinematic. Uh, I, you know, I they were CCD sensors. I don't know. This is just one company that's stopping, though. It's just Sony, right? Well, Sony is one of the biggest sensor providers in, in the they? world. Um, it's Sony and Canon are kind of neck and neck, and then a lot of their sensors end up going into other cameras. Nikon does develop their own sensors as well, but. Um, a lot of Sony sensors end up in uh, other camera brands. I believe there's a couple of Fuji cameras that have Sony sensors. Uh, mm. Well, the Leica I just mentioned have CCD uh, sensors from Sony. So there may still be development. It's not stopping it completely, but it is one of the major factions that to create this type of sensor. And in the past, we always had that cool option of, okay, CCDs are the top notch, man. We Every camera's getting yeah. those. We're moving to that. And then CMOS. And then we're yeah. moving back to CCD again. And it was kind of back and forth. But now, you know, everything CMOS. And with global shutter being added to a lot of these new cameras, I've got links to the uh, Ursa, the Blackmagic Ursa. The digital Bullocks has uh, a global sensor. 
that kind of eliminates the necessity for CCD. That was kind of their extra step forward, right? No. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I, I like progression. So uh, hopefully this maybe encourages even something beyond CMOS sensors. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, they're getting kind of fancy with uh, the backlit yeah. sensors and a lot of these new um, mirrors on each pixel site on the sensor itself. So I think yeah. sensor tech in general is going to get pretty cool. Um, definitely, if you're interested in sensors, you should go check out uh, Can- some of Canon's uh, press releases where they show off their like two or three megapixel sensor. And it's a huge full frame sensor that's only like one or two megapixels. And they're demonstrating it out in the forest. And basically, if there's yeah. even like a quarter or a tenth of a moon, they can see it, see like it's daylight outside. And wow. I don't know if that's where we're headed with regular cameras, but I mean, honestly, this A7S I was just holding up here, I can shoot this in the 5100 or 51,000 range ISO and not have to worry about the footage when I'm done. And that is that is ridiculously low light. I mean, we were in an area a couple of weeks ago and I was shooting with the A7S and we had three cell phones lighting the scene and then light pollution from the city that was, you know, 10 or 15 miles away. And that was enough to backlight yeah. the trees and stuff to give us the cool shadows we needed. I'm not saying that uh, high ISO is the solution for everything, but it's definitely cool when all I have to do is grab four cell phones, run outside really quick, film something, and then run back in. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to ask you too, because uh, I haven't had a chance to play with one of those, but um, th- does it grade really well when it's that low a light? I, it kind of is baked in. Um, okay. Honestly, w- with the shot I was just talking about, we had kind of a yellowish tint from the city lights coming right. through. And then the cell phones, we were able to set the white balance and, and kind of get things right. But you don't really get the option to really flatten out your image as much when you're shooting at that high ISO. You're kind of, yeah. I mean, you can push it a little bit, but you're kind of stuck with whatever you have when you get to that point. You can move it around a little bit, but don't be way off. Like, you know, don't make everybody look like they have jaundice or you're really going to have trouble <laughs> fixing that in post. Yeah. Cause some of the, like a lot of the things I've seen that have been really low light, I'm like, uh, you know, that's what I kind of figured is that once you have it, it's, that's what it's going to be. There's not going to be a lot of, of wiggle room, which is fine, fine with me. But uh, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. That that definitely makes uh, indie filmmakers excited. Woo-hoo. Now moving on down the line to something that's kind of interesting, uh, Lytro. This is sad mm-hmm. and good at the same time. Uh, they're laying off, I think a hundred hundred and fifty employees total, something like that. They just got an injection of fifty million dollars in funding. Uh, but they're planning to use that as a strategic shift into video and virtual reality systems. So it looks as though they're going to use the Lytro technology, which are you familiar with Lytro, the camera themselves? Uh, Yeah, I've I've seen that, but why are they so special again? The trick about Lytro cameras is, and they'll tell you like, instead of megapixels, they'll tell you it captures so many billion light rays. Well, what they do is, (laughs) They have a chamber inside of the camera, and the original ones kind of looked like a a lipstick container. These new ones look sort of more like an actual camera, but they're able to capture light from various distances simultaneously. So you don't get a high-resolution image, but you're able to capture it as though there were no f-stop on the lens itself. So you can get stuff 
from behind it at the subject itself, ahead of the subject. And then in post, you can actually digitally combine all the data that was captured from the image and determine what you want to be in focus and what you want to be out of focus. Now, right. there's still some stuff that, you know, you can't get around that applies because of the lens material and, and the way the lenses work, that you have a maximum amount of minimum focus you can get, and you have the regular limitations yeah. of getting closer to your subject means that, uh, you know, less stuff will be in focus behind the, uh, them at a distance and so on. But you're still able to adjust and move that window around. And I believe I've seen the software uh, demoed, but I've never actually used it myself. They kind of have like a bracketing system in the software that says like, this is the maximum end of everything that could be in focus. And this is the maximum end of the stuff that, you know, can't be in focus. So if they apply that to video where that gets cool is in virtual reality, as you move, things change focus. So you walk around an area or something like that. And now maybe that speaker that's in front of me right here or my coffee cup, you know, you're far enough away that it's going to be different focus or the stuff in front of you is going to be out of focus. And you're able to get all of that information when you're filming. So what this could mean is possibly a, you know, full scan of an environment, but not just a scan of where stuff is at, but also a scan of different focal depths for that area that you're in. And then in virtual reality, as you walk around, it can use the focus information to move the focus with you as you walk forward or backwards through a scene. That's crazy. Yeah, I can. That you know what that would be good for is the Hololens. Oh I don't yeah. Know, when you see when, when you say virtual reality, all I can think of is like Lawnmower Man back <laughs> in like the nineties. Um, and that's what I think of like virtual reality. That and like putting on like a Nintendo Power Glove and being like, yes, virtual reality. You're going to float around in a box and just put your <laughs> yeah. buttons and say access denied until like you finally get access granted. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, yeah, I'm, that would be cool if, if they could use something like, like the Lytro for, uh, for something like, like the HoloLens to make, you know, walking on Mars cooler or whatever. Well, but uh, yeah, I mean the, the possibilities are endless. I don't even understand that. That's crazy. Well, the Microsoft HoloLens, though, isn't that um, that's augmented reality, not necessarily virtual reality. So with that, they're able to yeah. project stuff onto surfaces and then provide sort of a 3D shape to it. But they don't mm-hmm. actually change everything around you. They just map the environment and then project onto it. With, Which to me, that's way cooler. Yeah, <laughs> that's so much more useful. Well, I, yeah. I don't know if it's more useful or not. I'm not going to debate that one because maybe there's a better use for something else. But being able to put something in the environment that you're in and kind of mess around with it. And then also maybe combine that with hand tracking and stuff like this. I think we talked about this on one of our early episodes where what if you could project it onto a wall and then use hand cues to edit. I mean, imagine editing where you can just be like, cut here, move this over here. And it'll actually be like you see on CSI where they're like moving the stuff around on the table and like moving the stuff around in the air. And like they have the thing and they're like, Oh, I want to see inside the body. And now they're in it. And then, and then you go Jarvis. (laughs) I want to make a Iron Man suit. Oh, that'd be awesome. No one talks to you, but yeah, no, but yeah, that would be because it, it basically it like, I mean the, for back to HoloLens because I'm totally geeking out about HoloLens lately, but um, it, it looks exactly like it even it actually looks even better than 
than what it did on on Iron Man because on Iron Man it's kind of everything is like bluish tins and see through. Yeah. I could not believe how how um, like tactile the the objects look through the little lens because I was watching some of the behind the scenes of the journalists playing with it and all of them laughing like little ten year olds. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because they're like moving a rock around on Mars or something. They really have to button stuff down for that. Um, I, I read a lot of the the reviews of that, and you do have to stay kind of on rails because okay. if you get out of the environment that they've kind of sort of sanctioned off for it, uh, things get a little bit wacky. And also, apparently, there's some sort of calibration for the mount itself to get it to line up with your eye distance and so on to make things look the way they need to because it's projecting oh, okay. kind of into your eye while you're looking at the environment. So if your eyes are closer together than the last person's, then it's going to project them in such a way that, you know, your 3d image doesn't line up on top of each other properly. And now maybe your corners are off or there's an open gap or something. So it's not quite there yet, but I I feel like it's a lot further along than virtual reality is right now. You know, it, Oh yeah. uh, Something like that. You could just, you could sell that to me tomorrow. If you're like, Hey, give me thousand dollars and you'll be able to like, play Minecraft yeah. on a table in your living room. Exactly. Uh, I'm in. And well, and, and they're saying that that's going to come out with, um, well, that was the announcement that it's going to come out with uh, a windows 10. Yeah. This year. Yeah. Which was, I, cause I was watching it going like, Oh, well, yeah, this will be, you know, by 2026, we might have this in production, but they were actually saying this year, which blows my mind still. Yeah. And I can't, uh, I can't believe how many people haven't heard of this yet. <laughs> yeah, it, well, it's kind of like they announced it. It was in the news, then it kind of died off again because there's so many people that are releasing a new uh, 3D and augmented reality systems. Uh, HTC just uh, partnered with Steam, and they're going to actually be releasing a new VR helmet that goes along with the Steam platform. I, yeah, I saw that. Which is ironic because Steam basically like fired a group of their people, which then <laughs> went on to do this exact thing that they're going to do again now with HTC. So... I don't know what's going to happen with that. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, all this stuff is really cool, and I think we're sort of living in the future, only without flying cars. So that's, yeah, and not a real good hoverboard yet. Ah. I don't think we'll ever see a good hoverboard, honestly. Oh, we'll see it. Now, we moving on it. and redirecting the conversation back yes. to cameras, let's talk about the Nikon D7200 announcement. Now, Nikon has been basically releasing sort of strange but interesting iterations of their lineup for a while. Uh, This is the next generation of their 7000 series cameras, and there was a lot of hopes and rumors that the D7200 would actually include 4K shooting. Well, to dash your dreams, it does not. Uh, This does offer 1080p at 60 frames a second. There is a 24.2 megapixel sensor in this. This is crop sensor camera. It's the DX format for Nikon. For those of you who aren't familiar with Nikon systems, DX is crop sensor and FX is full frame. So that's what's going on there. It shoots six frames a second. It looks like this is kind of in line with the specs for the original Canon 7D. What do you think about this guy? I, I'm so confused with Nikon because, you know, their cameras are awesome for video. They really are. They're fantastic. They, they take great video, but I don't, I, they, they just do strange, strange things because, uh, you know, nobody's going to get excited about this and they're like in video world anyway. Cause I, right away I saw when this was announced, everybody on, on social media was like, 
yeah, right. Uh, you know, this camera already exists, the 7D, and why are we so concerned about, like, who cares, 60 frames per second? They're, they're like, you know, at 1080p, I feel like I just traveled back in time four years and all this stuff, right? Um, so it's too bad. But then, I don't know, Nikon confuses me because then I know the next on our on our show notes here is about video. Oh, yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's, yeah. One more thing though, about this, before we move on to the, the, their new audio adapter is this camera does actually offer a headphone jack and a microphone jack, which, um, even though we've moved along to where that should be a thing on most cameras, if you still look at, uh, many of the rebel series cameras in Canon's lineup, uh, they're missing headphone jacks and Nikon has been kind enough to actually add these to, uh, any of their new release cameras. I also believe, if I'm correct on saying this, that it has a clean HDMI out, which is also nice. And so basically, it's like a well-rounded, pretty decent video camera. If you're a Nikon shooter and you had an older Nikon system and you want to kind of move up the ladder a little bit, uh, this is an attractive camera, but it's not anything groundbreaking or amazing. It's just good. It's decent. Yeah. And it comes in at, uh, what, $1,200? So... What's the yeah. what's the seventy Mark II cost you? It's um, somewhere in the range of I think sixteen hundred or eighteen hundred. So yeah. this is a little bit of savings if that's what you're going for. And other than the frame rate for uh, still shooting, uh, they're pretty close to the same. Uh, uh, megapixel wise, everything else, it's all kind of close enough that saving four or five hundred dollars would maybe make it worthwhile. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> or maybe not. Well, anyway, there's yeah, your Nikon love, guys. Um, I don't talk about Nikon much, and it's not because I dislike Nikon. It's just because there's not a yeah. lot of Nikon news. But we do have two news items in a row for Nikon. The second one is a little more interesting, and this actually got me researching uh, a little bit more into this. Uh, Nikon has announced the ME-WI wireless microphone system. This is a $246 Bluetooth-enabled water-resistant microphone and receiver setup that runs on Bluetooth and basically just has a camera out and a headphone jack out on the receiver side and a built-in microphone on the wearer side in order to translate audio or transmit audio back to the main device. This is, it seemed pretty original until I started thinking about it. And I'm like, wait a minute, long time ago, probably like five or six years ago, I put out a video showing how to use a Bluetooth transmitter and receiver to transmit audio for filmmaking. Now, it's not the most reliable system because Bluetooth is a little bit sketchy, and back then it was even more sketchy. But yeah. if I was able to do that with $35 of equipment back in, I don't know, 2009, something maybe earlier than that, then now they're coming out with systems that are $246. That's a little disappointing. And then I started looking into other companies that are offering similar things. Sony has the ECM-AW4 Bluetooth system, which is 175 and other than the water-resistant portion, looks to be the pretty much the same thing. And Canon, I totally missed this, didn't even know Canon had this floating around, the WM-V1, which is basically the same system as the Sony system and very similar to the Nikon system, and it's also $175. All three of these have been out for, well, all two of these have been out for a while. The Nikon system's still to come. So maybe there's something more to this that I don't know. I'm looking at the images for the Nikon system right now. And on the microphone side, it does have a 
uh, 3.5 millimeter jack. So maybe you can plug a lav mic into it and power the lav mic from that unit. If that's the case, that would make this a little more attractive. And I don't know enough about the ECM AW4 or WM-V from Canon to comment on their setup or design, and I didn't put the pictures in the notes, but there are links to all these in the show notes. You should check those out. Have you used a Bluetooth system? Would you use a Bluetooth system? I'd always give it a try. It sound that sounds pretty cool to me, and it's you know, as long as it, as long as the audio was good and a and and it was reliable in a in a smaller package. It's interesting that they put water resistant on there. Why would they emphasize water resistance? I don't know. Um, I <laughs> was looking right. at that, and I'm thinking that's why this is uh, substantially more expensive than the competitors. It's about seventy five dollars more than the other offerings that I mentioned, and. Maybe waterproofing goes alongside the ruggedness of the camera you're using it with. Uh, you know, a lot of Nikon and Canon high-end cameras are weather-sealed. So maybe yeah. they expect the pro to maybe, I don't know, be getting soaked in the rain and also talking into a microphone at the same time. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I, if, if this could provide me with clean audio, uh, I might look into it, but I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know for, for that price if it's if it's worth it. Uh, one other thing to comment on this sort of functionality, some people do this, and I don't know if it's still a thing or not, but uh, some people like to actually record comments on their photos in oh, right. audio onto their camera. And I don't know if this is available on Canon cameras because I've never actually tried to use the feature, but I do know that it's available on some Nikon cameras. So maybe that's one of the things that they're aiming for is with the water resistant, maybe you want to plug this into your camera and you want to say like, uh, I don't know, I shot this by the river in Tanzania or something like that. Or, you know, I was down by the ocean on Tuesday and this is what was going on. Or maybe you're a journalist as well. And you want to talk about who you talk to or then say the name of the person or have them say their name into the microphone as you're going around doing photojournalism or something like that. So maybe that's a waterproof reason. I don't know. That, That makes more sense to me. That's where I could see using that and yeah, and water resistant implying that, you know, if I'm out, out in Papua New Guinea or something like that, doing something for National Geographic, like I usually do, then <laughs> this would work for me. <laughs> One of the other things, uh, Sony's been offering units like this for a while now, and they're usually fairly reliable, but uh, they do tend to issue a little bit of delay into the system. Uh, what happens with bluetooth is there's not a lot of bandwidth for data to be transferred like there is with wi-fi so the plus side is you don't run into as much um you know overpopulation of that sort of communication because the range for bluetooth is small and you don't use it for you know your computers your laptops and whatever so if you go to a convention you're not going to necessarily get overwhelmed with a bunch of bluetooth devices and have dropouts like you would with some of the wi-fi audio systems we're talking about but on the other side is it's taking your audio it's transcoding it into something that's small enough to be sent via data on a small Bluetooth channel. I think this unit is using Bluetooth 4.0, which has a little bit more bandwidth, but it's still pretty limited. And then decoding it on the other end and turning it back into audio again. So that process, there's a delay as it's encoded and a delay as it's decoded. I didn't see anything in the specs that mentioned what the milliseconds of delay is on this unit. But some of the Bluetooth units I've tested in the past could be as many as 10 milliseconds, which is less than a frame. So it's probably not that big a deal for video necessarily, but it might be over a long video take. I'm not sure. 
Um, you'd have to kind of just stink around with it, but you can shift in post. So I suppose if you know what the delay is and it's calculated, yeah. then you can correct for it. Yeah. I, yeah, I guess so. But that, that is still annoying. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> uh, yeah. I would avoid that like the plague. Moving on down the line, this is these are actually uh, your inserts into the news, so I'll let you do the bit on yeah. this. Well, actually, um, the, there's uh, one thing um, here that I, I didn't put in the notes that we were talking about before we started here, but was uh, a Whipster, which I just recently used, which is um, it's at uh, if you want to check it out and try it out for free, it is a a subscription based um, thing, but it's I think it's fairly cheap here anyway it's a whipster.io and what it is is it's um it, they call themselves a workflow and collaboration platform for video creative specifically i just used this on a project that uh, a friend of mine ben over at um spur of the moment.ca um mentioned to me and he we tried it out on a on a project and it is fantastic um it's really powerful um uh, like digital media review uh, software really that's kind of I think I guess it would be cloud-based that that's what you call it. you don't you're not downloading anything onto your computer or anything but basically you upload a um, any kind of videos and you can send it along if you're working with a team or even rate to a client and you can have as many people as you'd like and everybody can um, either live or kind of back and forth in, in separate times if you're across time zones they can they can make their notes right on the video as it as it goes um, and then you can, you can share it with people or keep certain people out of it or, um, but it, it was, it was fantastic. It keeps all the different versions as you revise it. So there's like the version stacking going on and it's unlimited sharing frame accurate video. It doesn't matter what uh, frames per second the video's in. Um, yeah, I, I loved it. And I, I, I'm just trying to find here. I wonder what the pricing is on this. I'm looking around and they tell you everything except for pricing. Like they want to get you sucked in first before they give you oh, the no, monthly it's, rate. It's up at the top, up at the very top. Uh, it's got, cause you can do free forever, which is just uh, 15 minutes of video per month. And then you can refer friends for more, more minutes. Um, and then they've got uh, $25 a month, which gives you a hundred minutes uh, per month. So, you, you know, you'd have to be using it quite a bit. Yeah, that's and actually not too bad. Yeah, uh, fifty bucks a month for a team, hundred bucks for a whole company, which is unlimited. So when and you then, say a yeah. um, hundred minutes, is the hundred minutes like that's the length of video that you can have up at any one time for commenting, or is that the amount of time you can preview whatever clips you have up? That's that's a hundred minutes per month of, of video, video that footage. you can upload. Yeah, yeah, okay. For twenty five bucks a month, so that's I mean that's pretty good. I don't know if you're going to be doing a uh, like a feature film with this, but for my commercial clients, I thought this is fantastic because it. I mean, if you you know that that way, I don't have to go back and forth between an email with like a whole list of stuff, and then have to kind of uh, decipher what they were talking about and them having to describe it. Instead, they can just color code it right onto the screen. This color green isn't green enough. Change it here's a picture of the green that I want because you can put pictures right beside it, like attach them right nice. to the comment. It's fantastic. Really nice and intuitive, but really clean and easy to use for even people that aren't, 
you know, that aren't into uh, like maybe they're not creative types or, or don't know how to use uh, like Adobe, you know, creative suite or something like that. It's literally, you just click on it, it adds your little pin and that's it. So. Well, and we were kind of discussing uh, this before the cast. Um, What I've been using lately and I've been working on some narrative stuff is I am working on the final product. We're polishing up the the final edits and we're doing some uh, music score stuff. And I have like the composer uh, online with me and I've actually been using Hangouts, what we're using right now. And because Hangouts allows you to share your screen, you can share the entire screen with the group, have everybody log into Hangouts. And then the composer can be like, hey, this music is supposed to start at, uh, according to my notes, uh, 15, 10, 2, and move it there. So then, you know, I type it into the timeline, move it there, drop it in, hit play. Everybody listens to the music, make sure that it lines up with the cues and the scene. And then the editor that I'm working with on the other side, I've done most of the editing, but he's like, man, I want you to remove one quarter of a second off of this clip right here. And I feel like this just takes too long before it transitions to this next shot. Or we have an 18-minute uh, short film, but we want it to be 16 and a half. Let's try and trim this and trim that. And they can see you as you're doing it and working on the project. So yeah. for that sort of granular detail, I use this. But um, one of the things you brought up that was really uh, obvious after you said it is like, well, you wouldn't want to give a commercial client that option. And yeah. I said, hell no. No, I would not ever want to do that. And you're like, this is what this uh whipster.io is for is you can yeah. give them enough where they feel like they're telling you where they want stuff and making changes but you're not giving them the granularity where they start asking for things that either a don't make sense b are very impractical or c go well be- above and beyond the budget constraints that they've set for the project that you're working on that will end up taking you hours and days to do when you don't want to mess with that. And if you give people too many choices, they start asking for things you don't want to have to work on. Yeah, it's true. And, and I find, I don't know about you, but I find with like the majority of my commercial clients, it's always, it's, it's more, um, uh, like, you know, I don't like the, the way that that text looks or I don't, you know, the, the, that it's never about really the video. It's more, they're more concerned about branding and because usually there's a concept laid out beforehand. So you don't have to worry too, too much about that. So I just find that it's easier. Here's, this is, this is the finished based on the script. This is the finished product. Let me know. And then they just go through and, and make their notes. I, I yeah, I, I think it, it's perfect for stuff. But yeah. I'll have to try to get the Google hangout for, uh, for narrative work. Cause when you're working with creative types and everybody's collaborating in that way, everybody kind of understands what they're doing at, at that point. So, well, no, and a lot of times yeah. we do, um, we do that, uh, the BitTorrent sync. So we sync all of our project folders together. So everybody kind of has the same stuff in front of them. And then right. we want to still be able to edit together. And a lot of times we get together for these projects and film something, but then people go back to, uh, we have one guy that lives in Chicago. We have a, a writer slash kind of a composer that lives in Kansas city. I live by the Den- Denver Metro area and that's far enough that it's inconvenient for us all to get together. But you know, the writer also has input on like, well, you can't cut the scene because it's crucial. And the musician has input on, well, you know, I wrote this music for this scene and it's specific for this. And I want you guys to tell me if the tone is correct and so on. And right. that sort of thing is, is where this hangouts works really well for this other stuff. You're absolutely right. There's nothing more obnoxious than getting an email. <laughs> that's like 1521 change this. 
1522, move this text to the right-hand side. Uh, 1605, I didn't like the color of that icon. Can you change that to a different color of blue? And you're like, oh, okay. You know, it's like the weird stuff that you don't really, when you're editing, you're not even really thinking about that. You're just kind of going with what you think looks good, and then they kind of nitpick the weird stuff. Yeah. Well, and and really, I mean, what other, a lot of people that that, um, I'm dealing with, they're not really all that tech savvy they use computers and stuff but it's mostly for email and just surfing and they're not really into this which is why they hired me hopefully but um it this just makes it a lot easier for them and that and emails were really the only that's the only way that that they can think of you know even if i'm using dropbox or something that's the only way that they can it's the easiest way for them to just get it get it to me and get their ideas to me so that's why I thought this is even better because I can send it in an email <laughs> and then they just open it and they go, Oh, great. And they do it right there and that's it. And we can go back and forth as many times as we need to, which is fantastic. Yeah. That's pretty nice, man. I, yeah, I like the look like of it. it. I'll have to check it out. Um, yeah. what was the other thing? Uh, you had well, one more. The, uh, yeah. The, um, the live stream, uh, just came out with their broadcaster mini looks okay. like two days ago. It was on uh, TechCrunch. Um, and, uh, I, you had mentioned that you've, this, this reminds you of some other devices that are out there. I've yeah, never really I use the, uh, Paralynx arrow for a lot right. of like transmission. And then I was looking at the new JVC camera, the LS or L three thirty, Um, and that unit yeah. has a uh, Ustream built in, which is, uh, basically a Wi-Fi video streaming system that's proprietary to whatever the Ustream standard is and it allows you to, you know, send stuff off to computers or to your phone or whatever. And it looks like this is sort of that technology built into kind of a rubberized box that goes yeah. on top of any camera and allows you to import any HDMI port into the device itself. Is, is that a good explanation? That, that's exactly it. It's pretty simple. And it looks like it's got its own rechargeable battery here. Um, it's, it's two hundred, like three hundred bucks, two ninety five. Um, still streams ten eighty p video, um, and they're, I mean, they're they've got uh, like an iOS app and uh, an Android app, and that you can use that to actually use it as a remote control to find an internet connection and set up the stream, uh, if you're you know when you're when you're taping something, um, but I mean possibilities are endless with this. You can they even show on the website, you know, somebody sitting there with a, with a, a camera, a DSLR in the crowd of a, I don't know how good this is for concerts, yeah. but he's in the crowd of a concert and he's like streaming through, through his uh, cell phone data usage and streaming out to wherever. So, I mean, or for NAB for you or for, for yeah, Mitch. I don't know, man. Um, I'm nervous of any of this sort of thing in that dense of a wireless area True. so many True, yeah. so many signals and stuff are going on that even like a wireless lav mic you're going to run into weird frequency problems uh i have nice kits and i was changing frequencies all the time depending on what section i was in because so many yeah. other people were covering stuff but still for a concert there isn't a ton of wi-fi going on and if you set it up correctly and you're close to your hub or whatever maybe this is a cool option i'm interested to see how this works i might have to investigate this more I've talked about some of the stuff I've used in the past. I've checked out the uh, Paralynx Arrow. There's um, a, a company, I believe it's the Nero or Nirco. Uh, they make like a, lo- a poor man's version, but that one has a USB port on it and you have to bring external power in for it. And it's not Wi-Fi. It's using some other proprietary streaming technology to send uh, data mm-hmm. across. 
And uh, that one requires a tra- uh, receiver and a transmitter. Whereas this it looks like it's almost exclusively uh, digital Wi-Fi signal. Is that is that correct? Um, I'm not seeing anything other than the uh, 5G or 802.11. I know that's that's what it, that's what it looks like. They didn't really go into much detail. They they also have like a $500 option, which is their their uh, broadcaster pro. Hmm. I don't know if that. Uh, yeah, I'll there, definitely check this out, man, and I'll probably post some more on it once I've researched this a little bit more. They've even got um, some stuff that it looks like it's somehow connected to Google Glass. So, you know, yeah, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what that does. Um, interesting product, and if you're looking for more information on that, you can find it at uh, new.livestream.com. Uh, yeah. Again, that's new.livestream.com. We'll also have that in the show notes. It's an interesting product for under $300, and I'm sure that somebody will need it. The one thing I don't see listed anywhere, and I'm, I'm digging through the specs right now, is the latency on this guy. I wonder what the uh, uh, latency is for Wi-Fi video transmission to your cell phone or what have you. So that might be a thing that is an issue for people that are looking for something as a remote screen for, say, uh, you know, a stabilizer or something like that when someone's flying right. your camera around. But if you just need to stream video to another screen or something like that, this looks interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, with with uh, kind of internet, quote unquote, TV shows happening more and more and more and more, uh, this is this is a great way to uh, to build on on all of those formats as well. Last thing up or, on the list here. Um, that's a cool product, but uh, is the pick of the week? Is this your pick of the week? Sure, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the uh, with the uh, the broadcaster mini. I've never tried it <laughs> <laughs> since it uh, was just announced two days ago, but I like it. And uh, and Whipster, let's go with Whipster too. So you can find both of those in the show notes. My pick of the week is of course that small rig that I was showing off earlier. Again, Beautiful. this thing is beautiful it's really tiny it doesn't take up a lot of space it's not heavy on your camera and that handle configuration and i'll post pictures of this and more info on how i set this up on dslrfilmnoob.com so you guys can check that out probably later on in the week but the handle configuration i came up with and the setup in general just really make the a7s a lot more practical to handhold and to shoot with this is definitely something i'm pretty excited about so that's the picks of the week. John, where can people find you? They can find me uh, on Twitter at Jonathan Vids, V-I-D-S. Uh, come hang out with me. Um, you can find me on Instagram under, um, under Jonathan uh, A. Pictures and JonathanAPictures.com. Facebook, JonathanAPictures.com. Look up JonathanAPictures.com. Canadian, it's me. <laughs> check out my and check out my reel. If you do, you have a reel. I do not publicly post my reel. My oh, reel okay. is only hanging out with the production company that I work with, and uh, yeah, they choose which version of my reel and tell me when to make changes according to what I'm working on. So that's oh, okay. kind of the secret sauce there. Um, a lot of times, my commercial work is actually just, Hey, make me something that's exactly like that thing you did this other time. And so because of that, (laughs) like you just whip up a quick thing and then send it over and they're like, yep, do it like that. And we're happy. And then they figured that you're just going to do it on spec. So 
that's my secret sauce. <laughs> it's funny because it's always the commercial people that ask for the real, and then they don't even really know why they want a real. They just know they should ask for one or what a real even is. <laughs> oh well. <laughs> on that note you can find this podcast anywhere good podcasts are distributed including itunes soundcloud and so on just search for dslr film new podcast you can also check out all of our stuff over at dslr film new podcast or shoot i messed that up dslr film uh, that's where all the blog posts and all that stuff go and of course we will see you next week with another dslr film noob podcast